We're going to be exploring today a story that I suspect none of you know anything about. Certainly, I knew nothing about this story until I took in hand Neil Bascom's fascinating new book called Faster, How a Jewish Driver, an American Heiress, and a Legendary Car Beat Hitler's Best. This is a story that in some ways runs parallel to the very well-known story of Jesse Owens and his triumph at the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games, except that this involves uh, the sphere of auto racing. And uh, it's a story that, for a, a number of different reasons, has been uh, almost completely forgotten. And uh, forgotten no longer, thanks to uh, best-selling author Neil Bascom. He is responsible for a number of fascinating books, including The Winter Fortress, The Escape Artists, and uh, I want to make mention of his book, The Perfect Mile. I had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Bascom about this book, uh, which explored the quest to uh, run the four-minute mile. Uh, of course, a quest that was ultimately won by the great Roger Bannister. And his book was a thorough and fascinating chronicle of that, uh, of that effort and of the efforts of three elite runners in particular to, uh, to seize that uh, uh, audacious goal of running the first four-minute mile. And uh, he's done it again with another fascinating book published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, again titled Faster, How a Jewish Driver, an American Heiress, and a Legendary Car Beat Hitler's Best. Neil Bascom, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. That was a lovely introduction. I am uh, excited to uh, talk with you uh, about this. Um, before we explore the story, I wonder if we could talk about the level to which this story uh, is forgotten. Um, first of all, to what extent is this, uh, or was this, before you wrote your book, a, a, a largely forgotten story? And, and, and to what extent it was forgotten? Why? Why was this important story so very obscure? Well, I think it's it's largely, I mean, yes, it has been largely forgotten. There's very few um, you know, slivers of this story that you find in, in motorsport histories, uh, but in sort of contemporaneous accounts of, of, of what was going on at the, at the period, I mean, this was absolutely huge news. And so to see that it subsequently um, sort of disappeared was something that, that I wanted to correct. Um, and probably most importantly, the story of, of the heroine, Lucy Shell, who, you know, no one knows the name of uh, uh, her name, but she was the first woman to, to own and run her own Grand Prix te team. Uh, she was one of the best Monte Carlo rally drivers, American Monte Carlo drivers uh, in the world. And yet, nobody knows who she was. And so in some ways, she's kind of like a, a hidden figures-like uh, uh, individual. And uh, I'm proud and faster to sort of restore uh, her place. And I guess the last thing I would say about, about this is, you know, this story about a Jewish driver um, and, and Lucy Shell overcoming the, the Nazi silver arrows was something that, that Hitler very much wanted to sort of squash uh, the story of that. And so after the invasion of France, uh, he made every effort uh, to eliminate any record of, of, of the great race that, that Rene ran to, to beat the Silver Arrows. 
and uh, even sought to destroy the cars uh, that were involved in, in that competition. Hmm. So it's, it's no accident that this story is as obscure as it is because that is something that Adolf Hitler himself uh, really wanted. In fact, that's one of the most fascinating things about this story is how intensely interested Adolf Hitler was in this whole matter of auto racing and of his ferocious uh, uh, determination for Germany to be the best in this arena. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's uh, probably one of the foremost reasons I ended up writing the book, because as much as I sort of love the story of Jesse Owens and, and the Olympics and the, sim- and the, the symbolism of all that, um, you know, this story about um, motorsport uh, was not only sort of symbolic. I mean, Hitler wanted to dominate it for propaganda reasons, yes, but it was also sort of integral to um, his re- boosting of the economy. It was integral to his development uh, against the Versailles Treaty of developing a sort of motorized infantry. And so not only was it symbolic, but it was it was core to sort of the Third Reich's uh, ambitions that we'd, we would end up seeing in the war. So, you know, a defeat or an attempt to stop the, the inevitable advance of the, of the Silver Arrows was, you know, n- not just an entertaining motorsport story, but one that, that had real significance. How much did you know about auto racing before you wrote this book? <laughs> I, I mean, em- embarrassingly or not, uh, very little. And that's, you know, it's not unusual for, you know, the range of books that I've written over the course of, of my career. You know, everything from, from kids building robots to Russian mutinies to, you know, skyscraper wars in New York in the 20s. I sort of make it my mission over the course of the two to three years I spend on each of these books to kind of become a mini expert. So I knew nothing about auto racing um, before. But I probably could uh, lick anybody in a, in a trivia event uh, about 1930s, uh, sort of golden age of, of Grand Prix racing. Uh, I am now a mini-expert on that. Hmm. I, I want to mention that your book includes two very interesting opening chapters, and I am so glad that they are both there. The first is an author's note and then there is a prologue that follows it. And these two chapters are completely different from each other. The author's note, very much from the present day. And then the prologue, which interestingly enough, uh, basically follows uh, the most important events of the book itself. Uh, it's, it's an intriguing choice for you to open your book as you do. And I'm glad you do. Uh, I think both of these are very, very uh, helpful for for the reader. I wonder if you would just sketch both of them for our listeners. Sure. The, you know, and it was, it was something I, that I've never done uh, before in an author's note, you know, to, to start the book, but I thought it was kind of important to the story to, to, to see these cars in their present day. So in the author's note, I basically start out with readers uh, sort of following me along the, the Pacific coast highway in a, in a rented sort of boxy, a car that that has no personality, uh, and I'm driving up to to Oxnard, uh, California, to to drive and actually the Delahaye 145 race car, uh, open topped uh, V12, uh, built in in 1936, 1937, a very different experience. And I wanted to sort of 
try to give readers uh, uh, a, the visceral experience of what it was like to to drive in these in these race cars at the time, the sort of feel, the sound, uh, the sort of you know you could as I write, you could almost you know graze the the ground with your fingertips. That's how sort of low they are uh, to the pavement. And I thought it was, you know, no harnesses, no, no, <laughs> no helmets, uh, no safety equipment of any of any type. You know, sort of bracing your knees against the, the sides of the car to stay within it. And so I thought it was important to a just show that and, and give readers that sense, and also to sort of bring this story to the present because of the four Delahaye race cars that were ever, ever built, they have been been restored to their glory and and it's kind of the significance of the story that it has not been lost uh, to history that it's kind of as, as you said in this opening question like restored to history so that's what i do with the author's note uh and then you know i sort of step a little bit back into history starting with um you know the german advance uh in the prologue the german advance into france uh and the hiding of of all the various artworks and also these Delahaye race cars and sort of giving readers a teaser why this was important, seeing the Nazis go into the automobile club of, of France and seize the records uh, and they were never seen again. Um, to, again, sort of give the, sort of the significance of, of, of this story. And, you know, I'm very glad you, 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 you found that you liked it because I felt like it was a bit of a risk to, to, to write it this way because I'd never done before, but I'm, I'm hopefully glad I did. We're speaking with Neil Bascom about his newest book called Faster, How a Jewish Driver, an American Heiress, and a Legendary Car Beat Hitler's Best. Uh, the book is about a very critically important race at a critically important time as Europe was tilting towards the horrors of Nazism. But... Uh, the story beyond that is is also about this era in which auto racing was first taking off and uh, was such a, a spectacularly uh, popular and Im- an important pastime. Uh, I'd really like to start there, uh, and and I really appreciate the fact that you 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 include in the book so much rich and helpful context. Uh, about sort of the, the the nature of auto racing during this era, um, and I think most people would be surprised to know that that there had been auto racing almost as long as there have been automobiles. I mean, even in the very <laughs> very earliest days, uh, maybe you could just sketch for us at least in brief, kind of the evolution of of the the whole notion of car racing uh, to the point that we reach when we get to the late twenties and, and into the 1930s. Sure. I mean, I, you know, you cannot, I was kind of surprised at this as well, sort of reading about the, the, not only the history of automobiles, but the history of, of motorsport, that the two are intertwined uh, inseparably that, you know, the cars were barely being advanced um, or built. Uh, be, uh, and then soon after, people were racing them, and they were racing them largely to, you know, prove that they had the, the best car, just like we do uh, today. And so, you know, you have by the you know 1890s, you have these city by city to city races, uh, and then by the early 20th century, you're beginning to do um, circuit races, uh, 
Grand Prix formula races where you specify, you know, the car can be this weight, it can have this kind of engine to sort of try to unify uh, the kind of cars that are participating against uh, each other. And you find that the cars each and every year get faster and faster, um, that the technology advances, that car racing kind of spurs that technology uh, and also spurs the public uh, to want to own these cars. So again, they're they are inseparably intertwined. And the, the races become bigger and bigger, the cars get faster and faster. And so you have by you know the 1930s where where my book begins, where these cars are going, you know, 80 to 90 miles an hour on average in some of these races to over the course of the 30s going up to 200 250 miles an hour. So it was kind of a, a major leap in, in the speed and uh, danger of, of what it was like to, to drive these cars. And so it was kind of this fascinating period where the, the, the safety, I mean, drivers were, were dying almost on a weekly basis um, the safety versus the sort of advance in technology, which, which the Germans had a, a major uh, impact with. Right. Before we talk about uh, you know some of these different kinds of races and this era of racing, uh, I, I also want to highlight what I found to be uh, a really intriguing moment in the book. This is actually well into the book uh, during a chapter called A Very Good Story, uh, in which we are in which we are hearing about all that goes into the design of a given car or when a successful car is, in a sense, redefined, uh, refined, and becomes an even better car um, for racing. Uh, You write at one point, to design any car, let alone a Grand Prix competitor, to combat Mercedes and Auto Union demanded many things the inspirational leaps of an artist, and the deductive patience of a mechanic, as well as insights into metallurgy, electricity, physics, mathematics, aerodynamics, production, and, of course, engineering. And in the next paragraph, you quote an automotive historian as saying, A car is not a thing. It is an aggregation of things, a compound complex of numerous mutually supporting components that are infuriating because they are also mutually interfering. The man who can see how to eliminate these incompatibilities, how to make each component in such a way that it does its various tasks as well as can be, while detracting from the performance of all the other components as little as can be, uh, can see how to design a car. I think most of us uh, who just drive a car, I mean, without racing our cars, uh, never stop to think about the intricate web of choices and decisions that are made in the design of a given automobile, let alone how true that must be when we are talking about this particular kind of arena. Tell us more about the uh, almost, in, in, almost unbelievable uh, intricate uh, complexities that are part of designing cars, and especially when we're talking about designing cars to race i mean there's 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 so much that goes into um you know as 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 you quoted into the design of these cars and particularly when they're going at speeds of 200 miles an hour on a race course that's winding through the streets 
you know, they not only need to hold to the road, uh, they need to be durable, uh, they need to be a certain weight, um, you know, the brakes need to be uh, be able to stop the car <laughs> at, a, at various speeds. Um, they have various different fuel requirements. I mean, the you know, designing and building them is just a just a Herculean effort. And it was it was very interesting to me to watch the you know the company Delahaye uh, produce the Grand Prix car that that Renee drove and that Lucy Shell uh, invested in because this is a French uh, automobile company that had. You know, over the tw- from the 20s to the early 30s, been known. I think the best quote is for producing cars that quote unquote are best suited for a funeral procession. They were stayed. <laughs> they were not very fast. They, <laughs> you know, uh, the design was 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 not great. Um, they could they could ride forever, but um, not quickly. And so, for this French automobile company to suddenly decide to save their company that they'd need to build first sports cars uh, and then go into the Grand Prix field was just, uh, you know, utterly fascinating to watch the transition that they went through. Uh, that their engineer Jean Vansois, um, you know, because the, he was told not only do I do you need to build a, a Grand Prix race car, but we need to develop it in a way such that we can use this car for for the general person. So that was something that Mercedes and Audi Union weren't even thinking about. They were willing to spend whatever it took just for a Grand Prix race car. But Delahaye needed to not only build a race car, but one that they could ship uh, and build uh, for, for, for the common individual. And uh, that made it even more interesting. And so it probably, the, the development of the Delahaye 145 took roughly... Uh, a year uh, to 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 design and build and work out all the kinks and it was a constant process uh, an iterative process of, of fine-tuning fine-tuning fixing making it faster and to to follow that I think as a reader um, you almost never see see that in in, in motorsport books and so I thought it was very important to, to show that right we've already touched on the fact that uh from from its earliest days, uh, auto racing has been uh, quite dangerous, and you you tell us about certain uh, incidents in in racing history in which there were terrible catastrophes and and terrible loss of life, including uh, a race back in I think 1903 where where more than a dozen drivers were killed, mechanics, spectators, uh, in a single race. Uh, due to a, a, a terrible kind of multi-vehicle crash. And interestingly, this seems to have had maybe an effect opposite from what we might expect, that rather than uh, getting people to be less interested in something that was so dangerous, it actually seemed to fuel uh, the interest of the public and the interest and competitiveness of the drivers themselves. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. I mean, there was, there's almost a, you, you almost get a sense, not only just in the reporting, um, you know, the, the magazine and newspaper reports, but if you, you know, uh, listen to interviews of, of individuals who, you know, watch these races, it almost had a kind of gladiatorial um, atmosphere to it. Uh, it was in, 
in some ways kind of a blood sport because there was so much death, there were so much, so many accidents. I kind of relate it to sort of hockey, not in the book, but in my own mind, you know, hockey back in the you know 80s and, and 90s where fights were sort of ubiquitous. You know, you would go to a to a to a hockey game and expect to see a, a, a good fight. Um, and I think similarly in motorsport in the, in the 30s, you would go, you know, and have that sort of that sort of sense of being on edge, sort of waiting and you know, not wanting to see an accident, but but that was kind of part of the thrill of it. Uh, this expectation, this danger that these people were pushing the envelope. And I think from the driver's point of view. Uh, you know, Rene Dreyfus said that you know he was intimately uh, acquainted with death. That that at every race it was something that that you expected, and that the drivers kind of had to accept that. And it was in some ways, uh, you know, uh, part and parcel of of being a driver. So today, where you have accidents and cages and helmets and fire. Uh, retardant suits and everything you know it's still a dangerous sport but nothing compared to what it was like in the 1930s Hmm. at one point uh you write these words the drivers themselves felt they were part of a vanguard mastering the element of speed the risk of death may have been the price but it was worth it for the exhilaration of teetering at the edge of the impossible this probably also helps us understand why someone like Adolf Hitler was so uh, very, very interested in this. I mean, he was swept up in this uh, just like so many other people were, but also saw beyond that uh, a, what we would now look at as a rather nefarious purpose. No, uh, absolutely. I mean, the... the, the the spectacle of these races, I mean, in, in Germany particularly, I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of people coming to attend these races. Uh, it was, um, you know, in Germany and in Berlin, it was a huge propaganda event uh, for them. And, you know, they played up the drama. They played up the sort of blood sport nature of it. And they played up, of course, the, the German domination of it. And just to sort of tether back to what you were talking about, you know, quoting um, uh, earlier about what the drivers sort of teetering on the edge of the impossible. You know, I was I was very interested in sort of what drove these individuals to become uh, Grand Prix race drivers. I mean, yes, there was celebrity. Yes, there was money. Uh, but almost to an individual, you have them writing that that uh, or 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 saying in interviews that they would never they've never felt more alive. And when they were behind the wheel, they never felt like their life had as much clarity that they were, you know, being in that moment in the present with nothing else there um, was everything to them on the road. And I, you can equate it some ways to what you read about mountaineers uh, and their efforts in, in, you know, reaching peaks and climbing that sense of everything else in the world uh, disappears except for that sort of next handhold, uh, that next uh, reach. And very similar you see with these race car drivers. One of the things that I appreciate about your book, and I guess I'm especially impressed given the fact that you yourself do not have a long background in auto racing, but obviously have (laughs) become something of an expert uh, thanks to all of your researches. 
you seem to have a, a very good understanding of what it takes to be a successful driver. And I think for a lot of us who uh, especially only watch this very casually on occasion, uh, it the whole matter of, of who's, who's the faster driver, the better driver, uh, the, what, what is behind that is kind of lost on us. Isn't it just the person who just depresses the accelerator faster than everybody else and doesn't crash? <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, exactly. there's, there's a whole lot more to it than that. And I so appreciate the uh, insightful descriptions that you give us of many of these drivers. In particular, uh, one of the drivers who actually does not figure in this momentous race from 1938 that is kind of the centerpiece of your book, but but a very major figure, a very important driver in this time, is uh, someone by the name of, I believe, Louis Chiron, C-H-I-R-O-N? Yes. And uh, Absolutely. You, you, de- you describe him at, at one point, uh, with first of all, with the nickname of the Old Fox. He was a daring but calm driver. And I just find that so intriguing that uh, for as much as we might think of auto racers as being just kind of reckless and uh, uh, fearless and so on, here is one of the most successful drivers of the era being described as a daring but calm driver. Tell us a little more about him and about what is behind these deceptively simple words. Sure. I mean, Louis Charon was was from uh, uh, Monte Carlo, and he was in many ways kind of uh, Rene Dreyfus' uh, mentor, that he was a few years older. Um, he was uh, one of the great drivers of the early 1930s, and he was daring and calm, as I quoted, but they also would comment about how he held the steering wheel almost like it was made of glass. And you, you had the sense that he was just taking everything sort of very gently and very carefully. Um, but, you know, behind that sort of reservoir of calm was, was an absolute killer uh, behind the wheel. And you, you see this again and again. I mean, the, the drivers were uh, basically generally of two breeds. Uh, you have the Louis Chirons who were calm, um, daring but reserved and, and sort of very intense. And then you have the, the likes of Tazio Nucolari, uh, the flying Mantuan, um, the great Italian driver who, you know, would flail about the, the cockpit, would beat the sides of the car, uh, would was anything but calm and was just hot-blooded all the way through and was also an amazingly brilliant driver. And each of them had their own techniques and their own approaches. I mean, I was fascinated by Rene Dreyfus, who was also a sort of calm and very precise driver. But one of his great uh, abilities was to know how hard and how far he could push a car because he knew the mechanics of it uh, intimately well. And so that, too, was a part of being a great race car driver. It's not it's that sort of link between you and machine and, and knowing kind of like a kind of like a, a jockey and its horse, how far you can push it uh, to the breaking point. And so all of these elements are, are part of what it is to be a, a race car driver. And, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, they were, you know, as I quote at one point, you know, sort of matadors of their age. And uh, to understand them uh, was to me, uh, super important for the book. Right. 
And by the way, uh, there's a very interesting uh, passage uh, in the chapter called The Shadow in which you really describe the significance of the so-called pit stop and of how the the kind of work that a crew has to do. I mean, and that's true to this very day. That's by no means unique to the particular story you're telling in your book. But, I mean, that's also a very important ingredient in all of this, not just the driver and his car, but those that work on that car and those in that pit crew that have to uh, facilitate uh, uh, refueling and, and, and other matters to, to keep that car in the best of shape for, for, the, for the race being, being waged at the time. Uh, and again, even if we have kind of a vague sense of that, most of us have no idea just <laughs> what a finely honed machine that is, just the pit crew. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the great German manager, um, Neubauer, said that that was his secret weapon uh, in motor racing was the ability of his, of his pit crew team. And it was really this period in the 1930s where that was professionalized. And the, the pit crews, you know, uh, and again, this was a development by Mercedes and Audi Union and just showing the intensity that they had to win you know, of bringing, you know, kind of an army of pit crew workers uh, to the events. They had been practicing, they had timed everything. And so pit crew stops in the 1934 to 38 period went from, you know, two minutes to change a tire and refuel and get everything going. Uh, that Neubauer and his Mercedes team had it down to a science of like 29 seconds. So you can imagine what a difference that makes if you're, you're gaining a, a minute and a half uh, over the course of a race that may have three pit stops. Hmm. One important matter that is chronicled through the course of your book is the way in which the nature of auto racing in Europe begins to change. And at one point, and this is uh, in a sense an observation by one of the main figures in your book, Rene Dreyfus, uh, is what you call the widening chasm between countries. Races were increasingly a battleground between nations rather than individual drivers. So tell us first how that used to not be the case. How was it before? And then what began to change that made this, in a sense, a much more nationalistic undertaking? You know, it's it's kind of cyclical um, between the the motorsport being a sport about individuals, uh, about the individual drivers, the individual teams, that being the sort of most important aspect. And then you have, of course, the the nationalistic. Is it the French team winning? Is the German team winning? Initially, you know, in the the late 1800s, again, it was individuals and it was the particular cars and the manufacturers. And then right before World War I, you have everything's about France versus Germany versus the English versus the Italians. You have in the 20s and into the early 30s, Again, everything being about the individual drivers, uh, they would switch teams, they would move between countries. Um, it was all about uh, about them as drivers. But with the rise of of Hitler making, you know, in the statement of the 1933 Berlin Auto Show that Germany will dominate motorsport, 
very quickly after that, after all the investments that he put into Mercedes and Auto Union, it became a nationalistic endeavor. Uh, one, to show Germany was the best, that the Third Reich had the was the best government and had the fastest cars and, and reigned supreme. And and the other countries, the other manufacturers, both in France and Italy and England and elsewhere, uh, had to catch up with that. And so there became this kind of race in France to build a Grand Prix car to challenge the, the, the Germans. And that's exactly what, what happened with the Delahaye race car and Rene and, and Lucy. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Neil Bascom and talking with him about his amazing new book called Faster, How a Jewish Driver, an American Heiress, and a Legendary Car Beat Hitler's Best. So I think we've set the stage uh, pretty well, although one thing I would really appreciate you doing briefly before we talk then about Rene Dreyfus uh, and Lucy uh, Chef is help us understand kind of the vast variety of races that that existed at this point in time and that how some races were around a track and some races were very much across country and over wide uh, expanses of land. Uh, I mean, it, it, it is a, a, a much more complicated landscape than I think most of us would uh, ever imagine. Yeah, and, and dissecting it and trying to <laughs> understand it, you know, in, in a in a in a pithy, uh, quick response is, is a little hard because there was there was such a range uh, and such a, a different demand on the cars and the drivers given what what the particular race was. So there were hill climbs where uh, you know you would have a, a ten mile uh, climb starting at the base of a mountain to the top. Who would get there the fastest? It was one car would go at a time. You have rallies where they would go for, you know, sometimes weeks on end from various city to various city, driving thousands of miles uh, to who got to the end destination first at a particular uh, time following particular rules. Uh, you have sports car races where you have cars that need to be fitted out with, with, with you know, everything that, that uh, you know, you would normally need, lights and um, various other things. Those kind of races, like Le Mans and, and, and others. And then you have ones that go from town to town, uh, 24-hour races. Uh, and then Grand Prix races, round the round the, the city races like Monaco or Poe, where the track was short. It was 1.97 miles. Um, so just a, an absolute range of races. And, and many of the great drivers, like Rene uh, and Rudy Caraccioli, it was kind of the German uh, driver I feature most and faster, you know, they were great at most of these. So they weren't just sports car drivers. They were hill climbers and they were Grand Prix drivers. And, you know, for Renee's point of view, he was a, a rally driver as well. Hmm. It's interesting to track the the career of Renee Dreyfus and uh, the fact that uh, his fortunes begin to uh, pretty much plummet. At one point, in fact, I think the year is 1936, you call him a jockey without a horse, a career that had pretty much come to a standstill. Explain why his fortunes uh, soured as dramatically as they did. I mean, that is a very simple answer. It was because he was um, he was Jewish. Uh, I mean, the, the name Dreyfus is probably, you know, in France at the, at the time, 
uh, the, the most known uh, Jewish surname out there, uh, although Rene wasn't directly related um, to uh, the army officer who was who was uh, indicted. Um, his name here definitely carried that weight. And so Rene found himself, uh, although one of the great drivers of the early 30s, driving for Bugatti and Alfa Romeo and Maserati and wanted by all these teams, that the nationalism and, and worse, the fascism of Germany and Italy had largely seen him banned from the best teams uh, with the best cars. So by 1936, he really is a jockey without a horse. He has no team uh, that will take him. And um, that sort of sets up the situation where Lucy Shell is developing her own Grand Prix race team and is searching for a, for a great driver, uh, lands on, on Rene. Hmm. Um, and it's very clear, you know, the German, uh, the German team manager, Neubauer, said that, you know, if he could have recruited Rene, he would have. But Hitler never would have stood for it. Um, and so he was a, a driver without a car. Hmm. We need to learn more about Lucy and uh, the the uh, deep mark that she left on the auto racing world. And at a time when it was not very common, it was a male-dominated world in so many different respects, although there were a few women and some who achieved some success. Uh, she, of course, is a race driver herself for a while, but at some point makes the decision to uh, devote her time and energy and especially her resources uh, in a little different way. Uh, I- explain this part of her story. So Lucy, you know, to encapsulate Lucy, I mean, she, a, she was a very good rally driver. She was very tough. Uh, she was very focused on winning. Uh, she found herself by the mid-1930s, um, you know, uh, being surpassed by other younger drivers and needing a kind of new mission. And she was also very rich. Uh, she inherited a lot of money from her, uh, her parents. And she also, I think the third part of it is she did not have a great uh, love for, for Germany. She was a, a nurse in world war one uh, in France. And she saw all the sort of devastation caused by that war. And so with the sort of rise of militarism by the Germans, she wanted to sort of push back against that. So all that sort of comes together for her to say, listen, no one in France is doing anything to challenge the Germans. Uh, she's an American living there. And she says, well, if, if no one else is going to do it, then I'll finance my own team. I'll finance my own car uh, to take on the Germans. Um, it'll be my sort of new mission. Um, and I'll be the, the, the first woman to, to own and run a Grand Prix team, and, and I'll be the one to, to, to lead them to victory over the Germans. And what's more remarkable than that ambition is that, is that she manages to do it. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this uh, particular car company that is involved in this effort and the kind of monumental challenge that they were facing. I mean, Delahaye was, you know, on on the brink of bankruptcy, um, and a very bold decision by the chairwoman of the board uh, in in 1933, 34 says, okay, well, we can't mass produce cars uh, because that's too big of an investment. Um, we can't dominate the sort of luxury market. Um, so let's build 
you know, some sports cars that work very well and promote our brand that way. And let's take a, take a risk at it. And so they were known mostly for, for A, state vehicles, and B, for building very durable trucks uh, and mail trucks, <laughs> uh, literally the post office trucks uh, and fire trucks. And so they ended up evolving one of those engines uh, into a sports car engine, um, which was extremely successful. And then Lucy drove some of those sports cars for Delahaye in the Monte Carlo Rally. And then in 1936 goes to Delahaye and says, okay, well, you've done very good with the sports car and this, this six-cylinder engine. Now I want a, a 12-cylinder engine uh, that spits out you know, double the amount of horsepower and I want a, a, a car that can go, you know, 150 miles an hour around a racetrack uh, for hours on end. And like you said, it was a it was a huge endeavor. Mm. Uh, one thing that matters a lot is, are, are some of the, the choices that were made in designing this car. But another factor in this crucial race in 1938 uh, was what Rene Dreyfus knew about the Mercedes cars that were going to be that were going to be part of this race and that for as formidable as these machines were they had certain weaknesses that Rene Dreyfus knew about just say a quick word about that well the, the, their biggest weakness was they were too powerful <laughs> and so i think i write somewhere along the lines that you know they brought a they brought a, a cannon to a knife fight. Um, and so in a close quarter around the, the houses circuit um, <clears throat> in Poe, uh, where it's very windy, uh, you can accelerate to the maximum speed of your car, um, you really need to focus on, on agility and, and speed at, at, lower, uh, at lower tolerances, essentially. So... Uh, that is the the weakness that that Rene found um, when he was in the practice trials at at Poe is that is that the Germans couldn't use their overwhelming power and that if he drove uh, consistently and well and aggressively where needed uh, he could beat them uh, and so it was very much a, a, a David and Goliath kind of moment right and of course uh, what is especially impressive about the victory that Rene Dreyfus is, is able to, to, to secure in this important race is that going into it, he knew what was at stake. He, in your words, uh, if he won, his victory would be a symbolic triumph against the Nazi thugs. And uh, I think that is really important to acknowledge. Sometimes there are critical moments in our history, and we don't even realize it until we look back with hindsight and realize what something means. He knew, everybody knew what was at stake in this race, and yet somehow he <laughs> managed to uh, surmount the situation uh, so impressively. Yeah, and so in some ways it was, the, it was the inspiration, knowing that, you know, here he was, a Jewish driver taking on the Germans, you know, at the sort of, you know, feverish height of, of the anti-Semitism uh, in Europe was something that, that was 
very important. It was very important to win. And actually, one of his his mentors in the mid '30s, you know, said, "Renee, you know, you could be the one of the great or the greatest driver in the world if A, you were more aggressive, and B, if you were you were driving for more than just yourself." And I think what's cool about the story of Renee over the course of Faster is he comes to that realization, uh, and Lucy kind of brings him there to be a more aggressive driver, to take more risks. And then B, to have something that you're fighting for, not just so you can be the number one driver and that you can have you, you can stand on the podium, but that you're fighting for, for more than that. You're fighting for, for, for a reason beyond yourself. And that, again, is what Lucy sort of brought to, the, to his focus. And that, that arc, I think, is, is super important to this story. Hmm. I want to mention that not only this crucial race that is kind of the centerpiece of your book, but many other important races are described in almost breathtaking detail. I mean, nearly lap by lap. How is it possible to know that amount of detail about races that uh, were, you know, maybe run 90 years ago? What the primary reason is, journalism, motorsport journalism in the 30s was absolutely marvelous. I mean, it just was superb. And so you had, you know, scores of writers for newspapers and magazines attending these races and writing beautifully about them. Uh, And not just saying, you know, they, they ran this lap in two minutes and 32 seconds and this was who in the lead, but, you know, what the weather was like, what, what it smelled like, uh, what the look on the racers' faces was, uh, interviews with them afterwards. I mean, the, the amount of coverage, I mean, just volume, because motorsport was such a huge um, sport at that point in time uh, that you had the best journalists, the best writers attending these events. And so I was very lucky to have all those contemporaneous uh, accounts from not only the French, but the Germans and the Italians, and the British and the Americans, all collectively together. Uh, you know, a single race um, at Poe uh, had two huge volumes of of just newspaper articles from all these. I mean, almost a thousand newspaper articles over the course of you know a couple weeks around the event. And so, I had more than enough material to to probably write a whole book about uh, each one of these races. Hmm. But I promise I did not do that. <laughs> well, it is a book that is just. <laughs> packed with fascinating information. And beyond that, uh, the principal figures, including some of these talented and competitive drivers, uh, emerge as, as, as vibrant and complicated human beings. So it's a lot more than just race results and, and numbers and car parts and so on. I mean, this is a powerful human drama which you describe in, in an absolutely extraordinary fashion. It's an incredible book. Oh, and it includes, uh, and it includes, by the way, I want to mention uh, a postscript in which, among other things, you explain uh, at least what we believe to be uh, the final fate of these, uh, of these impressive cars, uh, French cars that were part of this uh, impressive victory. The book, again, is Faster. How a Jewish Driver, an American Heiress, and a Legendary Car Beat Hitler's Best, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It includes many intriguing photographs. 
the author Neil Bascom. Neil Bascom, you've done it again. Thank you for bringing to the world yet another fascinating book, and thanks for talking about it today on The Morning Show. Uh, It was a wonderful interview. Thank you very much.